Hello and welcome to the Pilgrims Digress. We are the Pilgrims Digressing. <laughs> Is that better? No, that was different. It was different, but I, I like better. that. Yeah. <laughs> I am Zach Bartles. This is Mr. Sagacity, Joey Sags. And uh, we are here to talk about Chapter 5 of the Pilgrim's Progress podcast, uh, in which we had a few uh, final interpreters' visions, and then Christian made his way to the cross. It's kind of a, a climax for the beginning of the, the book, and the way that uh, Bunyan breaks these things up is in stages, stages of uh, his, his travels. And the third stage begins with, in my dream, the highway on which Christian was to travel was fenced in on both sides of the wall called Salvation. So we kind of start in stage two, and, and by the time this, this chapter is over, we're, we've gone over where he breaks it to stage three. Uh, I, I see the, the idea of him receiving salvation, being relieved of his burden as a good end point, but then also had to have one of the shining ones say, this isn't the end. Yeah. And let me tell you a little about why, why I did that. Not only because it's good theology. Okay. That when somebody shares their testimony, it doesn't just have tons Stop. of sin and then end with when they get saved. Yeah. <laughs> then you're, that's like, okay, it's the story over. Anyone else have a good story? Uh, but like your testimony continues and yeah. uh, maybe the best parts are after that. But uh, there's also a logistical thing where a number of people apparently started listening to the first episode of the podcast, uh -huh. which starts with that flash forward to the Battle of Apollyon. Oh, interesting. Heard some like piano music and was like, oh... Uh, this is it. This is done. And then and didn't ever hear the rest of it. So um, That's an insane thing to think. Yeah, so they thought it was like 10 minutes long. Um, but I don't want anyone to, to unsubscribe because they heard like, oh, like, oh, it's done. Okay, he made it to the cross. Uh, no, uh, that's that's the beginning. So, uh, by, by the way, it, it's looking now there are yet 17 more chapters of his story and then, mm -hmm. and then his wife's. Um, and then, God willing, the Holy War. But wow. uh, we're getting way ahead of ourselves now. Yeah. So, in in the uh, let's let's start by talking about the interpreter's house. The last time we were there, he was in the room with all the dust. He was in the room with passion and patience, and he was in the room with the the painting. And those were all three very kind of positive pictures, I think. And the, yes. it, it gets a little darker here, and he ends a with a warning, right? Yeah, a little. I have a tendency in my preaching to start with the warning and end more with like the the hope and like the extending of here's the whereas the interpreter, grumpy as he is, yeah, he starts with like here's a godly pastor, but it's a really kind of freakish picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like uh but but that's but it's positive. This is a godly pastor. This is, you know, look at this woman coming and removing all of it. That's a picture of grace. And then here's passion versus patience. Oh, okay. And he ends with patience, getting the good things for the next world. And, and now he's like, all right, time to wrap up this sermon. And he ends with like a the guy in the cage. Yeah. And then the guy having this horrible nightmare. Hmm. And he's like, all right, that's a warning for you. Be on your way, buddy. Hmm. Uh, it's a very stark contrast between a Puritan Baptist, early, early Baptist view of, of these things and maybe our current more seeker-friendly version. I feel like it fits epistles well, though. Hmm. Ending a lot of the times with, like, warnings not to fall away, not to go away, you know, yeah. say the course. Um, 
or even the Sermon on the Mount, right? right? Jesus yeah. starts with all this, blessed are you, blessed yeah. are the meek, blessed are... And he ends with, uh, the storm came in, knocked down the house, how great a crash it was. Mic drop, that's yeah. it. And, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it so ends yeah. on kind of a warning. Yeah, and it's, it's foreign to us, but I think it's a very biblical mm-hmm. way to approach things. So the first picture is uh, one of a fire burning. So he sees a man sloshing water, buckets of water, onto a fire, mm-hmm. and yet it burns hotter, brighter, taller still. Uh, and then he's taken around back, shown that the secret to the burning of the fire is a never-ending supply of oil through a secret channel in the back of the wall and continually the oil comes down and he basically tells him one's the devil he's he he doesn't tire he never really has quashed one of these things but he's he keeps trying he's not a quitter i almost admire him in that right like it seems like such a lost cause and yet keep on keep on sloshing the water and on the other side Christ never tires and mm. never runs out of oil. Yeah. Um, whereas it, it, I picture Satan having to be replenished continually. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of a, a miraculous vessel that Jesus has that will that will always because it's it's essentially just His grace, which is far greater than all our sins. And it's interesting that despite all of Satan's attempts, it actually only encourages and makes the fire burn. Uh, bigger and hotter. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Spurgeon sayings about pushing him up against this rock. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I heard and, it and, and kiss how, the it, wave that, yeah. that throws me against the rock of ages. Yeah, because it's because it's it's only building you up stronger. It's only bringing you up a level, even though the attempt is you know what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Um, uh, that not only is it not successful in. Uh, in um, extinguishing uh, the Christian spirit, it is exactly the opposite. It's nothing but an encouragement. I think that's interesting. Yeah, if there's if there's no water being sloshed on you, yeah, there's a problem. Right, probably. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think there may be some experimentation that we could do, you and Ooh. I, as men who are fans of fire in general. Do you think we could arrange some kind of fire situation with a channel, with a, a large source of, I don't know, maybe fossil fuels, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> Somehow I wind up at the end, literally the end of the Pilgrim's Progress, and I have no idea how I got there. Just swiping. I, I didn't do that much swiping. Doom swiping. Yeah, with it actually is doom swiping with this Yeah. collection of... You know what I'm going to do, Alex? Okay. Tell me what you're going to do. I'm going to go get that. You look over there. You see that 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 volume, that handsome old volume? My yes. friend Beth, our friend Beth, gave that to me. It was her father's. It is a very old, complete works of Bunyan. I Beautiful. get really nervous whenever I open it. Yeah. It has some of the most gorgeous uh, typography and, and prints, uh, graphics in it. It's even got like all the tissue papery yeah. things in there to, that cover the, the lithographs or whatever. And I'm going to f- open it up. Yeah. I'm going to find Carefully. chapter 110 of Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, because a footnote here tells us that this is where he describes his own experience of the fire and the water and the oil. Better be good. <laughs> if not, I'm going to go immediately on Amazon and leave like a two-star <laughs> yeah. review.
<laughs> oh boy. Sighs from Hell. Imprisonment mm -hmm. of John Bunyan. Life and Death of Mr. Badman. Dude, he wrote so much amazing stuff. What a giant. It's also cheerful so far. <laughs> well, look at this. Yeah, what's that about? It's a facsimile of the will of John Bunyan wow. in his hand. Look at his signature. I'm going to try to... My last name starts with B. I'm going to start trying to write the B the like B's that. The like that? That's baller. B for Bunyan, B for baller. Look, yeah, look at this stuff. I, I know that you, listener, can't see it. You can't, can't look it. at this stuff. Don't yeah. You, you, yeah. Just see it in your mind's eye. Relation of the imprisonment of Mr. John Bunyan, minister of the gospel at Bedford in November 1660. Wow. What passed between the judges and his wife when she presented a petition for his deliverance, etc. Wow. Written by himself. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I got to read all That's this really stuff. interesting. Here it is. Yeah. Found it. Found it definitely in the book. Yeah. Because the book has the same chapter numbers. I didn't have to look it up on my phone. In mere minutes. So this is what he writes in his uh, spiritual autobiography, essentially, uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Then hath the tempter come upon me also with such discouragements as these. You are very hot for mercy, but I will cool you. This frame shall not last always. Many have been as hot as you are for a spurt, but I have quenched their zeal. And with this, such and such who were fallen off would be set before mine eyes. Then I should be afraid that I should so too. But, thought I, I am glad this comes into my mind. Well, I will watch and take what care I can. Though you do, said Satan, I shall be too hard for you. I will cool you insensibly by degrees, by little and little. What care I, saith he, though I be seven years in chilling your heart, if I can do it at last. Hmm. Continually rocking will lull a crying child asleep. I will ply it close, but I will have my end accomplished. Though you be burning hot at present, I can pull you from this fire. I shall have you cold before it be long. Hmm. That sounds actually like quite a segue from this to the, the Iron Cage Iron pigeon, cage. honestly. Yeah. But uh, the, uh, the notion that uh, there's greater grace, you know, that, that's just a description of the water being thrown on. And, and Satan in this picture has, has no view of what's happening in the heart, right? I mean, right, yeah. He, he can't know. Let's read the, the proof texts. We, you don't hear that. You know, we're, we're more environmentally friendly today. Yeah. Uh, not only do we not have pages printed out, but Alex has started doing away with some pages of his Bible. Just, yeah. Just ripping them right out. Pulling them right out of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone knows a good Bible re-binder, uh, uh, drop us a note at uh, pilgrim at highandsilver.com. Um, but we're looking here at a couple of passages here that are, are given as proof texts. One of them is from Zechariah 4. I'm not going to read it. It's a description of the two olive trees that are, they have no, the golden tubes up to them, pulling the olive oil out, continually fe feeding the menorah through the lips of the, the bowls out of the top of the lampstand. It's, it's one of those passages that has a lot of possible interpretations, but the broad truth of it is God is able to supply continually what needs to be supplied. Then there's 2 Corinthians 12.9, which says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. As far as a, just a truth, especially as applied to this fire scenario, yeah, I, 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 think that's, I think that's exactly what this is about. We can know, no matter, uh, no matter what Satan is throwing at us, that there will always be more than enough grace given to us by Jesus, and that's just a part of his nature. You know, the loaves and the fish, the fact that he overproduces mm. for people. 
uh, he makes more than they need. And there's several, you know, baskets left. That's just who we have on our side, who we have in our corner. So this water from Satan is nothing. It carries no real weight. What's interesting is that it seems like even from that description of what, what Satan says to him hmm. in the Bunyan's Grace Abounding, it has had an effect on some. Right. And so he'll call those people to mind. And I think that will push us into the, the next uh, vision we're going to talk about. Uh, because in this case, this this guy, wh- wh- whoever's heart this is that's mm-hmm. pictured here, there's no chance that the fire is going to be yeah. put out. Whether there's, it could be seven years, like Satan said to, to Bunyan's you know, heart and mind. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, the, the goal, probably Satan knows it's not going to happen. The goal is just to break the confidence of him and say, no, I, I'm not going to let up. Therefore, you may as well give up. And this is what we see if we look at the context by zooming out a little and starting a little before verse 9. Of course, this is the thorn in the flesh passage. And uh, he says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And that's when God says, my grace is sufficient for you. So Satan is using and leveraging something in the flesh. Nobody knows quite what that is. Hmm. It's been suggested it's his eyesight. It's been suggested it's uh, a besetting sin that he struggles with a lot. And and whatever it was, he wanted it taken away. He wanted the sloshing of the buckets continually to stop. Hmm. And the the answer is basically, I've got more than enough oil to keep the fire burning. Um, And maybe there's a purpose that I have in this. Here it was to keep yeah. him from becoming conceited because of the great revelations he'd received. Could be different things in different people. So there's another one in between here, another vision, the vision of the palace with the guy, the valiant pilgrim fighting everybody. It's fun. Uh, this is why this is a great story for teenage boys and yeah. uh, maybe tweens. I don't know. There's a pretty... There's a, tweens. There's a pretty graphically yeah. severed head if, if audio can be graphic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've got there. Multiple sounds. We didn't talk much about uh, th- this logistical stuff lately. And there's nothing to talk about like where this deviates from Bunyan's text. I haven't added any elements or, or changed anything. It's all it's all basically the same content, just in different words. But uh, the, the the sound of the sword, the sound of the, the severing itself. Yeah. Then you got the spurting. Mm-hmm. And then you got to have the sound of the, uh, the head kind of... Yeah, kind of And then the guy kind of slumping to his knees... And then falling sideways onto the ground. You got to get all of that in there, or you yeah. don't have a real beheading. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, and I studied a lot of beheadings. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the my favorite one has got to be yeah. uh, Aragorn taking off. Is it an orc or Lertz? You know the name of the guy when he kills. Well, he's fictional. No, but I mean, like, they're, they're, I, I, I'm only... no. I mean, he's an added character to the movies. Okay. Okay. So they, they the character named... in the book is Uglug. Oh my gosh, you're a nerd, dude. Yeah. But didn't you tell me a minute ago, like, you you're, you struggle with some Old Testament stuff, maybe? I, big time. <laughs> Why, but you know. But I know that, though. Of... Heck yeah. <laughs> the cuts are, that also doesn't happen uh, there. In fact, Aragorn doesn't do any fighting. Really? Yeah, no. Uh, that entire part was just for cinematics. Dude, no Aragorn, Viggo Mortensen fighting people? I'm out already. Aragorn sits in a chair while Boromir dies. What? No one does. No one does any fighting. No one goes to help him. They don't know he needs help until oh. they hear the horn. And when they get to him, he's already dead. And there's a bunch of Urukai that he's killed around him. Well, yeah, that dies is, alone. You know what? <laughs> I just remembered it's not real, so I'm yeah. not that sad. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so there's all that fighting. There's and, and that's the one 
That's like the one thing that he, the interpreter doesn't really explain in Bunyan's text. Yeah. And I think it's the one that begs the most uh, description. We're going to deal with it next week. I'm going to have a, a faithful, obviously, is arriving at the interpreter's house as Christian's being spirited out the back. Just so, missed him. Yeah, he just, just you know, missed him. It's so frustrating. Yeah. Uh, if they could get together, they'd do far better. But uh, we'll talk about that next week. I think it's a really cool picture. Uh, Derek Thomas says that that it's kind of the main view of the Christian life from mm. someone in the in the Puritan world, big time, as a battle. Um, and there's some passages that we can read uh, that that are about it. And and obviously, we all know if you've been a Christian very long, there is some. It's a fight, spiritual yeah, warfare. It's it a is. Real thing. It is real. And if you're not fighting, if if your spirituality is kind of a floating down the river and receiving good things and everything going your way and you kicking out good vibes and receiving back good vibes, you're not following Jesus. It's that, trash. That's just a fact. Yeah. 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 You know, I I like how you don't mince words. I didn't have to Never. bleep anyone's actual name this time. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you mean you mean not bleep it and then re-bleep it? <laughs> I eventually bleeped it. I think most people who downloaded that episode got the bleep uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're a bleep person. <laughs> you know who you are. Oh, my gosh. Like, you couldn't easily Google, like, the word shopping cart and find out who it was anyway. Um, So let's skip right ahead to the most troubling one to me. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone reads this because, A, it's totally foreign to the way Christians today talk about Jesus. It is seemingly, in certain ways, at odds with how Jesus even presents himself. And even more than that, and I said seemingly, it really, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any kind of contradiction here, but it's a challenge for us when many people today have as their main picture of Jesus, mullet Jesus, which is what I call Salmon's head of Christ. And then there's another in the same series where this very waifish kind of wan, mulleted Anglo-Saxon, piercing blue eyes, wow. sad boy. Jesus, sad boy, is standing at a door, okay, and knocking, but not knocking like like anybody I know knocks. He's knocking like with the wrist going oh. backwards, you know, like a very a very tenuous, pretentious. It's pretentious, Why are you doing or it's that? just kind of like this guy is so broken, man. This poor guy. Oh. How many doors has this guy knocked, knocked on down. today? Nobody right. lets him in. No one wants to buy the candy bars he's selling. If you oh, no. look at that picture, I have a copy of it upstairs. I should have brought it down so we could gaze on it together. Yeah. There's a, there's a part of our church we call Purgatory, where all the, <laughs> the problematic art goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very funny. This picture of, of Jesus at the... It's, it's First of all, it's a complete misunderstanding of Revelation 3 in the context. This is not Jesus sadly knocking on the door of a, a sinner's heart saying, if you'll just let me in, I, I can do great things for you. But he's you know brokenhearted because no one will let him in. It's Jesus knocking on the door of a church saying, why on earth are you, why am I outside? Like, yeah. how, if you open the door, I will come in and eat with you and you with me, and your lampstand won't be removed, and I won't have to judge you. So if you zoom back on it, you can see, kind of cleverly, with lighting, it's the picture of a heart. It's not, uh-huh. you know, I didn't notice that until I was an adult, and I had seen that picture thousands of times. That's very cute. It, it is. It's, it's, yeah. it's a little clever. And, I mean, I don't deny that people have heard Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, mm-hmm. let him in, and gotten saved. There is a certain amount of truth, and there's even, I think, one passage in Ephesians where we talk about, you know, Christ dwelling in our hearts. I, I don't understand that being the go-to way a lot of people talk about salvation is, you know, invite Jesus in your heart or Jesus coming into your heart. But whatever, I, I'm not here to, to split hairs. 
that being somebody's picture, this really sad, kind of weak Jesus who just needs you to let him in, then when you get to the man in the iron cage who is crying and, mm. and sorrowful and brokenhearted because repentance is beyond him. It's outside mm. of his reach at this point. Right. He had been a professor. He had been zealous. He had told people, I'm going to the city. Everyone knew that was who, what he was all about. Then he laid the reins upon the necks of his lusts. He did not keep watch when he should, but yeah. slept. And he basically sold himself to the flesh, the world, the devil. And now there is nothing left for him of hope in the scripture, in the state that he's in, because he has crucified Christ anew. And he says, even it's God that locked me in this cage. And, and you're not listening if you think there's some easy answer where I can just undo it all. And when we hear that, I think of, you know, platitudes like if you take 10,000 steps away from Jesus, it's only one step to go back to him. Right. And there's truth in these things mm -hmm. for anyone who really wants them. Yeah. So I guess what I think would be, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. And I also want to play that Spurgeon deal. Um, and talk about that, but maybe we should start with the main texts, not not like the tertiary or secondary texts. So Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 uh, says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. That's obviously the passage that, the main passage that Bunyan had in view when he was writing this. There's also a couple of verses here in Hebrews 10 uh, that are footnoted, and I think that they too were on his mind. Uh, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So that's, I mean, more or less, I think if nothing else, we can say this is in the Bible. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it means, this this is a picture. This guy in a cage is a picture of something that's described by the apostle in the book of Hebrews. It's in the Bible, yeah. uh, and therefore there is perhaps less of a one-dimensional savior that is offered in the the mystery of the the gospel. The the sad guy who then is happy when you open the door and let him in. And I think the subtext often there is, boy, is he lucky to be there with you and. Like any good house guest, he'll be glad with whatever you give him. Right. Then you have, I remember uh, a, a little booklet, like whatever the difference is, the, the, the halfway point between a, a tract and a booklet is, yeah. uh, called My Heart, Christ's Home, that my mother gave me when I was a boy. And it was really great. It was, it was also allegorical, and it was somebody who had given Jesus, like, you know, basically you can sleep on the couch, yeah. and then slowly, like, he's looking around, but, but he's still very tentative. He's like, what's behind this door? And the, the person writing is like, well, I told him that's none of your business. And he said, hmm, I'd, I'd really like to see behind that door. And over time, they like slowly. And I think a better picture is Jesus with a blowtorch or one of those uh, SWAT team battering rams yeah. breaking down the door to your heart. He's going in. He is claiming it all. This is who Jesus is. And, you know, maybe this is just the Calvinist in me. But I think that this is a far more uh, fitting picture 
the idea that he comes and says, you're mine. That's what he does to Paul. He knocks him right down and he says, you're down on your back right now, blind. And soon you're going to be back on your feet, able to see, and you're going to be my guy doing my stuff. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no, not, excuse me, would <laughs> buy me yeah. last tape, ma'am, <laughs> to it. There's, no, there's none of that. Yeah. And, and you don't need to feel bad for Jesus knocking on the door of the heart of the sinner. I think we need to be worried about becoming uh, the person in the in the cage who's tasted of the things and then turned aside. Now, the real question becomes who needs to be worried about it? Although I think the warning should be there for everyone. It's part of working out your salvation, fear and trembling yeah. is being sure that you really are saved. To just state the obvious, you and I, neither of us think that somebody can be truly regenerate and lose their salvation. Correct. Jesus himself said, no one can, the, the enemy can't snatch anyone out of my hand. Anyone who thinks that the enemy can snatch someone out of his hand, therefore, is in trouble that's permanently. Scary. Yeah, yeah, that's scary. And, and I think a little bit sacrilegious is bordering mm-hmm. on uh, real problematic. But there, there is a sense in which someone is part of the church, has tasted of these things, uh, that might refer perhaps to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or reading of the word and, and, and receiving things together as part of the church or all of it kind of, you know, inclusive and has been enlightened to some sense. They understand things that that maybe your average worldly person doesn't understand. Spiritual truths with their brain, with their mind, and maybe even a little bit want them with their will hmm. uh, or maybe even a lot in that moment want those things with their will. Yeah. And then that kind of wears off and they turn aside and the state of that person, like Pliable, who's now gone back to the city of destruction, is seven times worse than if they hadn't gone there at all. I, I mean, I mean, maybe we could maybe we could fill this character with Judas. Mm. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, I think I think that I think that Judas's whole whole arc is really, really reminiscent of this guy where when it gets to the end of everything, true, genuine repentance that produces godly sorrow is not there. But there is sorrow. But there is and that's sorrow. that's where he is the guy in the cage. Yes. Yeah, so both, and I think that's, I'm going to read that godly sorrow thing a minute. That's from 2 Corinthians 7, um, verses 9 and following. Uh, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So so you have, as an example, Peter and Judas. Yeah. Both of them sin. Both of them walk away from Jesus, yes. right? Peter really runs away. You know, Judas is, we'd say Judas' sin is worse because he is aligning himself with the enemies of Christ and receive, being paid to betray him. But Peter... It's not good. Yeah. (laughs) Right? (laughs) After boasting. Yeah. After boasting there, even if it means my death, I'll draw my sword. I'll put myself between you and your enemies, and there's no chance. So when he draws the sword, he takes the the swing, cuts the guy's ear off. I have to admit, I just thought about how I would try audio-wise to make that sound. To make that, yeah. Uh, And I think I I could get a pretty good ear chop going. But uh, he (laughs) takes the ear off. Jesus says, put the sword down. Whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword. And then... Peter follows behind, along with John. I think that's one of the more interesting friendships in the whole Bible. Peter and Peter John. And John. Yeah, they're, they're such different worlds. And then for some reason, they're still stuck together, even through the book of Acts. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's nearly here, though. Um, I, I am all over the board today. Um, We're so organized. What are you talking about? 
and then and then they're in the outer court, and he. I'm sure everyone listening, most people listening, know this story. He has already been warned. You know, you say you're going to die for me, but you're going to deny three times that you even knew me before the sun rises and the rooster crows. And he does. He denies him three times. Then Jesus looks up and makes eye contact with him. Yeah. And he runs away. Yeah. And he weeps and he's brokenhearted. Judas also is brokenhearted. He runs back to the uh, the guys who paid him at, at the temple, says, I've betrayed innocent blood. They say, what's that to us? Yeah. He throws <laughs> the coins back at their feet to try and absolve himself hmm. and deal with his own sin. And... They they gather them up and they can't put them into the treasury. There's all this other stuff. It's really fascinating, but they both have sorrow. They both are they're, they're they're not just sorry that there's consequences. Right. They're sorry they did the bad thing. One is still godly sorrow. One is earthly sorrow. And the Peter sorrow leads him eventually back around to Christ yes. and being reinsta- being reinstated. And the Judas sorrow leads him to taking his own life because he has no hope. So, so, I mean, I guess, I guess in those last few, you know, days of Judas's life, you know, he was, I think, living as the man in the cage. Yeah. You it's know, an extreme know, ex- example, but definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think that, I think that explains, it helps explain the, um, I mean, committing suicide. If, you know, uh, reading that this is how this person exists, knowing what's coming you know, not being able to escape it. The weight is still on you, but you're not being gifted repentance at all. What what choice do you really have? You know, what... I mean, people every day don't commit <clears throat> suicide, but, you know, you either, you push it down. This is what Romans mm-hmm. 1 says, right? And, and we're going to read Romans 1, 24, about being handed over to your own shameful lusts by God, mm-hmm. which I think is also a picture of what's happening here. But in, in Romans 1... It says, basically, everyone knows who God is, his eternal power, his divine nature, and they suppress that knowledge. They distort it, they pervert it, they just push it down. You either will push that down, or you will try and live it up and have so much Hmm. fun right now in the moment. And I think that probably because when you became aware of your sin and and were coming to the end of yourself... I don't. I think that your personality and maybe just the way your heart is, there was no option for you to say, you know what? I'm gonna laugh all the more. Yeah. I'm gonna party all the more. I'm gonna I'm gonna live a life of just like living in the moment and enjoying every moment because in the back of your mind was rattling loudly the meaninglessness of it all. Yeah, pointless. There are people who have the ability to to drown that that voice out mm. for years and years and years. I think about comedians who are so outwardly bombastically fun and everyone assumes their life is so happy you find out later they live in a very very dark place and yeah. in, the, in, the, in their head is a very dark place or even people I knew in, in high school who now I hear about their lives and I think gosh I would never have guessed hmm. this person was just straight because you try to you know either you, you embrace it and give into it like Judas you fight it or you fight it with lots of good vibes Lots of volunteer hours, mm. lots of, you know, other other good works. There's so many ways to deal with it. Judas was such an extreme example. I think it makes mm. sense that this is where it, it went to, to the, the darkest place where, yeah. where he takes his own life. But I, I think we're surrounded by a lot. Of, ultimately, the guy in the cage, his, his will is bound by his sin. 
This is everyone outside of Christ. Yes. But what makes it so bad for him is that he knows he's in the cage. He can describe to you everything that's in the cage and even a lot of the stuff outside of the cage. Uh-huh. Because he's he's tasted it, he's seen it, he's been enlightened. He has head knowledge and even some experiential knowledge of what's outside of the cage, but he's not willing to let go of his sin. Mm. He's It's like when you have Pharaoh and... Everyone says, how can God harden his heart? How is that just? Right. And then you read it and you say, well, if you really want to, you know, parse this out, Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardens his own heart a few times before God hands him over to that. And it's over for him. And he, he's his heart is being hardened. Yeah. And I think this guy has presumed on the grace of God so many times. Hmm. He has said to himself, let me sin that grace may increase and trodden underfoot the blood of Christ so much. Not that God reached the end of his rope and said, I'm tired of you, Hmm. but that he fell into it face first. Hmm. And that's it now. There's no, I mean, there's not another savior that's been crucified. There's not another gospel that can save you. He's taken this one and trashed it and he doesn't love it. It's clear. He loves his sin. He wants to have them both, but he can't have them both. And so here he is stuck lamenting where he is. It's so sad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of smoking, you know, knowing where it's going to end up. Mm. And you can still put the pictures all over the cartons of black lungs right. and, you know, like dead fetuses and things like that. And it's not going to stop me from doing it. I'm still going to continue to do it because I want to do it. You know, even if I don't want that to happen, you know, and I know it's going to. It's what's going to happen to me, you know. Well, in uh, any addiction, really, right? I mean, yeah, you can you have do. the knowledge of... In, in any sin, I think. You mm-hmm. have the knowledge of where this is going to lead in the moment the spirit is willing, flesh is yes, weak. Yeah. And, and I think the, the the scary thing here and the difficult thing with this is we all know what it feels like to know yeah. there's some a thought, a word, a deed in front of me that that will lead into a bad place that is going to grieve the spirit, that is, that is mm-hmm. wicked. It is a rejection of the salvation I've received, and I did it anyway. I willfully sinned. And going, wow, what separates me from that guy? Right. And I think it's what separates Peter from Judas. It's that Peter then went back and, I mean, he didn't seek out Jesus. But when he saw him on the shore, he jumped in, he swam to him. Peter, I think, genuinely believes his previous declaration about who Christ is. Yeah. How could I go anywhere else? You have the, you know, words of life. You are the son of God. Um, where with Judas, I don't know if, it, is that belief there? Did he, you know? he never made that confession. He never made that confession. It's uh, often thought that, uh, Iscariot comes from the root of Sicarii, that probably hmm. Judas, probably even more than Simon the Zealot, was all about overthrowing Rome hmm. based on just, a, it may be, maybe tenuous etymology, but it makes sense to me that he would think, okay, I show the Romans where he is, that will force his hand. Right. We've got some swords amongst us. I know this guy's powerful. I know he's got supernatural power that's going to make him do what I want him to do. And I will use this Jesus thing so that I can keep the life that I envisioned, but also have salvation. And that's kind of what this guy is thinking, too. That sounds like some eschatologies. I agree. Yeah, we're going to force these things to happen. Yeah. We'll make God uh, move up his timetable by building this or doing that. Mm -hmm. Maybe something to that. Uh, but but in this case, it's, I mean, eschatology being a third tier. These are people mm-hmm. within the church. This is someone saying, I'm now placing myself outside. 
And I think it has to be a willful rejection too, you know? And, and I think the person, based on what I know of the background and what I've read, which is a lot of the Puritans, um, and, and even though he's, you know, we count him as a Baptist forebearer, very much in a Puritan tradition of writing. Um, if you don't know, the Baptists come from the Puritans, separatists who come from the Puritans who come from the Anglicans. But uh, they had this sense of making a break, a final break from your faith, apostasy. Mm. There's apostatizing going on here. And it's, in his view, unforgivable, the unforgivable sin. Right. Well, we wanted to talk, I think, a bit about different, a couple other scriptural verses. Yeah, yeah. So I think when you get to the extreme with Judas being so tormented, he hangs himself, mm-hmm. um, which is just uh, the most horrific end for somebody who had laid his head down five feet from Jesus and slept around the same fire for three and a half years. Yeah. It's it's so heartbreaking. Um, but there are far less extreme versions. And I think you see these, there's a, a footnote here. Uh, in one of the versions I've been using of the Pilgrim's Progress, to Luke 8. And that is in the midst of the parable of the soils. And then actually it's in the midst of Jesus' uh, explanation of what the parable means. I'm going to read the parable and then the explanation because I think we might have a couple possibilities of the the types of soil that Jesus describes Hmm. that that could be the person in the cage. And I think that more than one could be accurate. Uh, We read in uh, Luke 8, 4, And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then, of course, they come to him asking why he speaks in parables. That's not what we're uh, looking at right now. Fascinating, though. Uh, He describes the meaning here. The parable is this. This is uh, verse 11. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. That's not the guy in the iron cage, right? This is people who, you know, I, I think of even street preaching, which I love. And, mm. and I've done some of, not so much lately, but I still love it. The people who come around and, and yell back and mock and, mm. and, and hate what they hear. That's these people. And, and that's not the guy in the cage. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. So it's rocky soil where, you know, you've, you, you know, you see when you walk along seas of concrete uh, and the concrete's deep, there can yeah. be things growing, but when the sun comes and scorches them, they're going to go down. They're, they're not going to make it. There's not moisture. There's not life. Is this the guy in the cage? That's the verse that uh, is yeah. proof text here. I, I think it could be. Uh, so he, he receives it with joy. Mm. This is the person who burns all of their, now I'm going to date myself, burns all of their secular records. Right. Or whatever, cuts himself off from all of his old friends and all of a sudden, and we, and we talked about how like this would be the person who maybe would be closest to the pliable who is then mocked later yes. when he comes back. Yes. Uh, and maybe then that's the person who now doesn't feel like he belongs in the old world of his old friends that he cut himself off from, mm. but no longer relates to and identifies with the, the spiritual because there was no real lasting root there. Uh, then verse 14, as for those that fell among the thorns... 
They are the ones who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And for those who are in good soil, those are the ones who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So this is often called the, the parable of the sower. It shouldn't be. It should be the parable of the four soils uh, because the difference is the soils. It's not about the evangelist. Mm. It's about the soils. Only one of those. So, so, I mean, you could almost say when you evangelize, even if this is all representative in a pie chart, three out of four people won't be lasting true converts, right? <laughs> right. Uh, three out of four people, uh, a quarter of them, and, and more than a quarter of them are going to reject it out of hand. Of those who receive it, two-thirds maybe aren't going to be lasting true converts. It's a, a sobering passage. And the one amongst thorns, I preached through this text uh, maybe a dozen years ago, and I remember doing some, some botanical studies uh, on this. And uh, it, was, it was pretty clear to me that Jesus is not talking about like, Thorn, thorny, thistly things above ground choking out and stopping the growth. Mm. But actually, in the desert, in these arid areas, there would be these just, they grow fast as can be, weed, thorn, thistly things, and anything you try to plant near them would die because those would suck all of the moisture and all of the nutrients mm. and everything away just so fast that your, your crops couldn't make it. Um, and I think that's what we've got here. We've got multiple things that seem to be different categories. Worries, riches, and pleasures of this world. All the things of this world. Now we've got a huge variety of people here. Yeah. You know, the the, the yuppie in, in the 1985 who thinks maybe I want to be a Christian, but then realizes that he can, you know, have that apartment in that uh, mm. sweet Trans Am and, you know, whatever. And, and the pleasures, you know, all the mountains of cocaine or whatever. Or you have uh, somebody who, even like the single mom or somebody who, who just gets so overwhelmed by worries. Right. And isn't rooted enough where, that, then, where they can draw from Christ and cast their cares upon him. I mean, there's so many categories here. Are all of these people then going to wind up being the person in the cage? Or is this such possibly, potentially, some of these people, such a temporary situation that... It wasn't a real tasting of. It wasn't a real enlightening too. It was a hearing and a considering and accounting the cost and not quite getting into it. I've known some people whose testimonies were of the nature of like, I thought I was a Christian for a long time, then I fell away, then I realized I'd never been saved, and and like you know, there's there was a partial enlightening maybe, but not enough hmm. for them to to be outside the the scope of repentance. Uh, well, you you just use the word enlightenment. And, and that's actually one of the words used in Hebrews 6.4 that I think can be tricky because in Hebrews 6.4, the two words are enlightenment, who have once been enlightened, and then also, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Mm -hmm. So one, what is meant by enlightenment and what is meant by repentance here? Yeah. Um, because if, if, if our understanding of repentance especially as reformed people, is that it's a gift given by God. Right. Right? That's not what's being talked about here then. Yeah. Well, yeah. If it, if it had been given once mm -hmm. and then it fell away, there's not a way to give it again. But that kind of flies in the face of... Not what, godly repentance. Yeah. What the scriptures say is... Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, the word here, it, it, to, to get all Pastor Greeky on you, is metanoia. Uh, and it means really woodenly 
aftermind. Uh, so it's the idea is either, and, it, and there's different ideas of what, where the etymology goes, and you, you got to be careful with this because it can become logically fallacious, but uh, and magically delicious and logically fallacious. <laughs> <laughs> Meta and me uh, and noia after mind or afterthought. Like in one sense, it would be the idea of an afterthought, thinking after the fact, remembering something. For a Christian, even to remember something that you've done is to mourn over it and be brokenhearted over it hmm. and racked with guilt over it. I think that's less likely than just the notion of the after mind, meaning you've, your mind is being transformed now, your heart is being transformed, who you are is being transformed, and now you have a new way of thinking. You have that expulsive power of the new affections. You have all these things. New old mind. So hmm. obviously you don't have that if you dabble in Christianity, taste of the things, understand the truth of it, reject it, and go back into wanton sin. But you might have some change of mind for a while. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word for repent is shuv. It means a change of direction, to turn around and return. So you could also do that. You could have a change of direction in your life. Hmm. You could have a temporary change of thinking because you have received these things with gladness, like in, in Luke chapter 8, without having really been regenerated. The, the enlightening, I think, is, is a really, it's, it's not a normal category in theology, in soteriology. It's not, a, it's not something used frequently as a picture. Jesus does, in his ministry, open the eyes of the blind right. a lot. And then they can see what they couldn't see before. Uh, if I had read that section on the parables, <laughs> why, right. yeah. why he speaks in parables, he says, it's so that seeing they will not comprehend, he's quoting the prophets, uh, hearing they will not understand. And now... You can understand it. So, so maybe even some of these things that, that the worldly people can't understand because they're spiritual and therefore spiritually discerned, those who are in this boat can sort of understand. They can spiritually discern a bit. They can understand how lost they are without the Savior. They can understand how their only hope is to throw themselves at the foot of the cross. That, that'd be the enlightenment, maybe? Hmm. Yeah. And that'd be the, the, the repentance would be that they, they for a time turn their patterns of thinking around and, and turn their behavior in a different direction. But it sh proves to be short-lived. And when you look at the majority of their life, even after their point of alleged conversion, it was just a blip on the radar where they actually thought and lived and loved and wanted things the way that someone who is saved would. I think it's, I think that the real warning here and it is a warning to christian which is why it's kind of confusing because christian's like 25 feet from the cross at this point yeah right it's not like he's not going to get to the cross uh, I, I suppose it's possible that he would leave the interpreter's house and get sidetracked again hmm. anything's possible but i think that that's why it's confusing and i think it is something that you and i ought to keep in mind like if we find ourselves growing more comfortable with ungodly attitudes and invisible sins where you can you know, I can keep my job as a pastor here because I'm not out getting right. blasted every night and getting in fights, but I'm more angry and judgmental or I'm, you know, secretly involved in lust or this or whatever or that, you know, uh, lying, mm. um, covering things up, backbiting and, and creating division, whatever. You know, there's all sorts of quote unquote acceptable sins. Those, if that happens, I think it should make me start to think of the guy in the cage and say to myself, Hold on, if I'm if I'm working out my salvation in fear and trembling, like the Apostle Paul said, I should, I must. Mm. If if I if I really am born again, 
and regenerated, I should see the fruit of that. Like we were reading uh, in our men's group last night, it had to do with the tongue, but it applies, I think, everywhere. A fig tree doesn't bear olives, or, or I don't know, it's a mixed match of fruit, I don't remember exactly what, right? Jesus says that good trees don't bear bad fruit, and vice versa. So if I'm continually bearing the bad fruit in my soul, in my heart, I need to ask myself, am I giving myself over to my sins? Right. Am I tempting the devil? That was another phrase that he uses. I tempted the, the, the devil, the devil, and now he's here. Yeah. I have grieved the Holy Spirit so that he has departed from me. I have provoked God to anger, and he has abandoned me. I have tempted the devil, and he's here. So, so he's kind of like reverted his allegiance, right? Mm, mm-hmm. It's like Benedict Arnold. Right. He's still got the uniform, for, and he's still on the payroll yeah. of the Continental Congress for whatever those dollars were worth. But ultimately, we know now that he was, at heart, a British sympathizer. And so that's who he really was. That's how he'll always be remembered. Hmm. And that grieving the Holy Spirit comes from Ephesians 4.30. Uh, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Um, the, the idea that you can grieve the Spirit... I think you can grieve the spirit, certainly, with every sin, and all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven you. Right. Uh, except the sin unpardonable sin. Yeah. So I'm going to play a clip here from uh, Spurgeon, his pictures from the Pilgrim's Progress. This is something that's on the, the Patreon page. I, did, you, did you like how I, I kept the brand going and did the, the Satan the voice Satan for the voice. Satan stuff? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is uh, his take on the arrows of Beelzebub at the gate. And he references the man in the iron cage, and I think it's interesting how he references the iron cage as something that Satan might use against the mind of a believer as they're on the verge of being saved. And he really almost dismisses it. He says, if you Mm -hmm. are there and wanting salvation, you can know you're not that guy, and you can know you haven't uh, committed that sin. Uh, Mm -hmm. So here it is. Pictures from the Pilgrim's Progress by Charles Haddon Spurgeon Chapter 5 Christian and the Arrows of Beelzebub When Christian was stepping in at the wicket gate, Goodwill gave him a pull. Then said Christian, What means this? Goodwill said to him, A little distance from this gate there is erected a strong castle, of which Beelzebub is the captain. From thence both he and them that are with him shoot arrows at those that come up to this gate, if haply they may die before they enter in. Then said Christian, I rejoice and tremble. In this passage, Bunyan alludes to the fact that when souls are just upon the verge of salvation, they are usually assailed by the most violent temptations. I may be addressing some who are just now in that condition. They are seeking the Savior. They have begun to pray. They are anxious to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, yet they are meeting with difficulties such as they never knew before, and they are almost at their wit's end. It may help them if we describe some of the arrows which were shot at us when we came to the gate, for it may be that the darts which are being shot at them are of a similar sort. The most common one is this, the fiery arrow of the remembrance of our sins. Ah, says the archenemy, it is not possible that such sins as yours can be blotted out. Think of the number of your transgressions, how you have gone astray from your birth, how you have perverted in sin, how you have sinned against light and knowledge. 
against the most gracious invitations and the most terrible threatenings. You have done despite to the spirit of grace. You have trampled upon the blood of Christ. How could there be forgiveness for you? The stricken soul crushed under a sense of sin naturally endorses these insinuations. It is true, says he, though it is Satan who says it, I am just such a sinner as he describes. Then the poor soul fears whether pardon can be possible for such an offender, and probably he thinks of some gross sin that he has committed. The blasphemer recalls his profanity. The unchaste man remembers his lasciviousness, and Satan whispers in his ear, If you had not committed that particular sin, there might have been hope for you. But that transgression has carried thee over the verge of hope. Thou art now like the man in the iron cage. Despair has laid hold of thee, and for thee there is now no deliverance. Poor heart. There are many passages of scripture that ought to be sufficient to break or blunt all these fiery darts of the wicked one. These, for instance, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. God grant that they may be effective in your case. Sometimes another satanic temptation strikes the sinner like a bolt shot from an ancient crossbow. It is this. It is too late for you to be saved. You had many gospel invitations when you were young. You were almost persuaded while you were but a youth. But you halted so long between two opinions that at last the Lord lifted his hand and sware in his wrath that you should not enter into his rest. You are therefore now past all hope. There are many who have been for years burdened with this terrible fear. And there are some who seem to be like the prisoners in the condemned cell at Newgate who could hear the big bell at St. Sepulchre's tolling their death now. Yet there is not a word of truth in these insinuations of Satan. For as long as a man is in this world, if he doth but repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ, he shall be forgiven." There have been many sinners saved at the very end of their lives as the penitent thief was. Many have been brought to Christ and have been permitted to work in his vineyard even at the eleventh hour of the day. It is nowhere said in scripture that God will say to any man who truly repents that he will not receive him. There is no limitation of age in that text I quoted just now. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. If a man be ninety years of age, and he cometh to Christ, he shall not be cast out. Aye, and if he were as old as Methuselah, and he were to come to Christ, the promise would still hold good. Where this fear vanishes, it is often followed by another. Satan says, Yes, it may not be too late on account of your age, but you have resisted the Holy Spirit. You have stifled conscience. You have frequently, when you were almost persuaded, said, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will send for thee. Besides, you were once outwardly so religious that everybody thought you were a Christian, and you even thought so yourself. You used to teach in the Sunday school, and you sometimes preached, but you know where you have been, and how you acted since then. You have returned like the dog to his vomit, and like the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire, so now there can be no hope for you. You may knock at mercy's gate but it will not open to you. Now, dear friends, sharp as that arrow is, and well-aimed, as it frequently is, there is no real force in it. If Christ had never received those who have once rejected him, he would never have received any of us. 
for some of us refused his invitations and stifled the admonition of conscience a thousand times. Yet, when we came to Jesus, he received us graciously and loved us freely. Yes, beloved, and if you come to him after you have rejected 10,000 invitations, if you trust in him, after all your thwartings of the Spirit of God, you shall in no wise be cast out. Many burdened souls have been greatly troubled concerning the doctrine of election. It is part of the craft of Satan to take a truth which is more precious than fine gold and to turn it into a stumbling block in the way of a sinner who is coming to Christ. The doctrine of election is like a diamond for brilliance, but the devil knows how to use its sharp edge to the grievous wounding of many a poor sinner. You are not elect, says Satan. You were never chosen by God. Your name is not in the Lamb's book of life. How easily the sinner might answer the accuser, if he were but in his wits. He might say, How do you know that I am not elect, and that my name is not in the book of life? God has never authorized you to convey to me this doleful news, therefore I shall not distress myself about it. Why would we let such a fear as this keep us from Christ, when we do not let it keep us from other actions? A man is very ill, and his wife says that she will fetch a physician. No, my dear wife, says he, it is no use fetching a physician, for I am afraid I am predestined to die. Here is a man who is traveling, and suddenly he meets with an accident. Of course he endeavors to extricate himself. But if he were to talk, as some do in spiritual matters, he would say, I do not know whether I am ordained to escape, and therefore I shall not try. Does a shipwrecked sailor give up swimming because he does not know whether he will ever reach the land? Do you give up working because you do not know whether you will get your wages? Do you cease eating because you do not know whether you are ordained to live another day? Do you refuse to go to sleep because you do not know whether it is decreed that you are to wake up anymore? Nay, but you go about the affairs of life independently of any thoughts about the divine decree, and in that way the divine decree is realized in you. And I will tell you one thing, that is, if you do believe in Christ, that is proof positive that you are one of the elect, and that your name is in the book of life. I have never seen that book, but I know that no soul ever did believe in Jesus, whose name was not already recorded there. If thou comest to Christ, repenting of thy sin, I know that God has chosen thee unto eternal life, for repentance is God's gift, and it is a token of his everlasting love. He says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. God draws us to repentance and faith by the bands of his love because he has loved us from eternity. So let not that blessed word election ever trouble you. The day will come when you will dance at the very sound of it, and then nothing will fill your heart with such music as the thought that the Lord has chosen you from before the foundation of the world to be the object of his special grace. Another of the devil's fiery darts is this. You have committed the unpardonable sin. (laughs) This arrow has rankled in many a heart, and it is very difficult to deal with such cases. The only way in which I argue with a person thus assailed is to say, I am quite certain that if you desire salvation, you have not committed the unpardonable sin, and I am absolutely sure that if you will now come and trust Christ, you have not committed that sin, for every soul that trusts Christ is forgiven, according to God's word, and therefore you cannot have committed that sin. Nobody knows what that sin is. I believe that even God's word does not tell us, and it is very proper that it does not. As I have often said, it is like the notice we sometimes see put up, man traps and spring guns set here. 
We do not know whereabouts the traps and guns are, but we have no business over the hedge at all. So, there is a sin unto death. We are not told what that sin is, but we have no business to go over the hedge into any transgression at all. That sin unto death may be different in different people, but whoever commits it from that very moment loses all spiritual desires. He has no wish to be saved, no care to repent, no longing after Christ. So dreadful is the spiritual death that comes over the man who has committed it that he never craves eternal life. We need not pray for such a case as that. The Apostle John says, I do not say that he shall pray for it. I have met with some few cases in which there has been such solid indifference to all divine things or such jeering, mocking scorn at everything spiritual that though I would pray for the very worst of sinners, I have felt I cannot pray for that man. But none of you are in that condition if you long for mercy. If you hate sin and seek to escape from it, that sin unto death has not been committed by you. There are others who are troubled with this temptation— that it would be presumptuous for them to trust Christ. That is another of Satan's lies, for it can never be presumption for a man to do what the Word of God tells him to do. If the Lord Jesus Christ bids a man trust him, it would be that man's duty to do so, and consequently it cannot be presumption. It is presumption to say, O Lord, thou hast bidden me trust thee, but I am afraid that I may not. That is presumption of the worst possible kind. I cannot repent as I would, says one. Who made you a judge of your own repentance? You are told to trust in what Christ has done, but I cannot pray as I should like to do. Who told you that you were to trust in your prayers? You are to rely on what Christ has done for you and not on what you can do for yourself. But, says another, if I could get into a better state of mind, I should have hope. Who told you you were to get into a better state of mind and then come to Christ? The gospel message is, come just as you are, poor sinner, cast yourself upon Christ, resting entirely upon the person, the blood, the righteousness of the once crucified but now exalted Redeemer. It is no presumption for thee to do this. Nobody ever did get to heaven by presumption, but unnumbered millions have entered there by trusting Christ, and you will be one of them if you will but trust in Him and in Him alone. Besides all these fiery darts that I have mentioned, there are many indefinable insinuations which Satan casts into the hearts of men when they are coming to Christ. I should hardly like to tell you what they are, for I might, by so doing, really do the devil's work. But this one may serve as a specimen. Men and women, too, have sometimes been in such trouble of soul that they have been tempted to self-destruction. There have been instances in which they have almost committed that awful crime, but just at the last there has been some good will to stretch out his hand and pull them inside the door of mercy. Ah, thinks Satan, if I could only get one of God's elect people to destroy himself before he believes in the Christ, I should be able to boast of it forever. Aye, but he never has done that, and he never will. If thou, my friend, shouldst ever be tempted to commit that sin, thou mayest well say, what good could I get by destroying myself? What, leap out of the frying pan and into the fire, as the old proverb says? To escape from my sins I shall rush red-handed before my maker's bar? There is no insanity like that. Art thou in such a dreadful haste to die, and in such a hurry to surround thyself with quenchless flames? Oh, think not of it, but turn to Jesus, for there is hope yet, even for thee. And if thou wilt but cast thyself upon him, thou shalt have joy and peace, 
in believing. So what do you think of uh, the notion that the desire to be restored, truly be restored, is proof that you have not fallen away in this irreconcilable way? I mean, I think it's, I think it's absolutely true. Um, it, Jesus says that no one who comes to him, he will in any way cast out. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it, there's absolutely forgiveness there. There is the blood of Christ there. There is the cross there, the empty tomb for people that genuinely want it. Um, I think the problem with the person in the um, cage is that they tasted of those things and for whatever reason said, this isn't what I want. Mm-hmm. You know, and I want the benefits, but I don't want the whole package. And that's what it highlights in in Hebrews six four is you know they've tasted of all these things, they've had the word of God, they've had these things, and they've been given to them, and they said, "I don't want these; these are worthless to me." But I still want to be forgiven. But these are worthless to me. Well, then I guess enjoy being where you are. There's a lot of congregations you can attend right now that will tell you gladly mm. keep those things, and you can be forgiven. God kind of smirks at most of these things that churches are calling sin these days anyway. It's no big deal. Recognize that God is not the kind of God that would lock you in a cage. He's not the kind of God who would hand you over to Satan or give you to your shameful lusts or bring judgment or do any of the stuff in that last uh, vision where the guy Mm -hmm. has the dream about uh, the apocalypse. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's not the God we worship. And yet I'm sure that based on the how those churches are just dying on the vine left and right, Mm. it doesn't really do it for people. Like, you're telling me you've got this spiritual stuff, but you don't take the Bible seriously. You don't see this this God as being a real judge or a real um, ruler with any authority and power, and and there's nothing to it. It's all just... It's all just a teddy bear or... or, uh, It's that painting of the the one Jesus at the door. You'll get tired of a game eventually, you know? You're not just going to continually playing the same game. Eventually, it becomes time to move on to a new game. Right, you right. Know, yeah, that's uh, well put. When you're inside of these churches or this particular brand of, I'm, I'm doing quotes, Christianity, eventually you'll come to the end where you realize that you're just playing yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. Why am I getting up early on Sunday? Why am I doing these, if I'm getting up early on Sunday anymore? Why am I doing this stuff? Why am I giving this money in this way? Why am I... Why do I care how I live? You'll eventually ask yourself enough questions where you'll just talk yourself out of it and it'll become time to play a different game. You know, give me a new religion. Give me a new hobby. Give me a new yeah. Let's try the gratifications of the flesh. Let's yeah. try this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that maybe that's a safer place to have come out of than to have been in a, a gospel preaching church and yeah. truly been enlightened yeah. and then to have walked away from it. Yeah. Because then it's no, it's no game. Because you're, you're, you're fooling around with the most holy things, the blood of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. You're treating these things as a joke, a tool, a, you know, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, whatever you're doing. And it, that is beyond serious. Yeah, well, and, and once you've started to make light of those things, it's hard to start taking them seriously again. Mm. Just like anything in life, I think. I think, you know, like, as we grow up, Things that you used to take seriously, you know, they become a little more silly. And I think that if you are in a place where you are genuinely tasting of the word and you are participating in the Lord's Supper and you have been baptized and all of it was fake, even if you thought it was real, it's fake. It's going to be hard to 
I think, be convinced that any of that is real and effective and because it didn't have an effect on you then. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, what, you know, what changed? I've been down this yeah. road before and I know how it ends. It mm-hmm. ends with me kind of realizing that it's... Yeah, just burning out. And, yeah. It's a, it's a scary thing, but I think it's there to keep us on the path. That's its, that's its primary, uh, just like the next thing, it's, its primary purpose is to keep Christian from that short walk to the cross on that path. And uh, even, even, even past the cross to don't jump over or don't cross a stream or don't you stay on this path. Don't try bypath meadow or yep. any of these things. Don't yeah. do any of this stuff because it's so risky. It's so and it, it and, and it's and it's a risk that's not actually worth it. Right. You All know? risk, no reward. Yeah. Ultimately, it, it, the reward is so short term, and, and then the regret comes. So let's not end on like uh, as as Bunyan tends to, and even even as Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, let's let's not end on uh, warning and depressing things, but uh, on the cross itself. Yeah. Uh, I think this is definitely the most meaningful, beautiful heart-wrenching things I've ever read is Absolutely. the way that Bunyan puts this. Yep. The picturing of, and, and it's all so pure and and taken right from the, the scriptures. It's so sad to me that there's a version of this that, that was tweaked for a different religious tradition and they thought to change this. Yeah. And, and what I learned from uh, Spurgeon's uh, works on this is that the removal of his burden was temporary and it started to regrow again. Gosh, that hurts to even yeah. hear. Yeah. Not in this narrative because not in the scriptures does that happen. He sees the walls on the side. Yep. It's now a very narrow way and he is walled in by salvation. I think this is for security. Yeah. He's He goes up. I think the only reason it's uphill really is because Calvary was a mountain, right? Mm-hmm. He's going up the mount, and, and it is, you know, account the cost, you know. It, it also creates the downward thing for his burden to fall yeah. down, and yeah. it creates his toil and effort, making him all the grosser when he gets to the top, and yeah. he's finally <laughs> relieved. But his it, it happens in an instant. His burden just is gone. He looks back, and it is tumbling, tumbling, faster and faster and faster, end over end, down toward the empty tomb of Jesus where the stone has been rolled back. It disappears into the tomb and it's gone. Yeah. He never sees it again. Then he turns his eyes back to the cross, goes the last few feet up, falls down on his face and the three shining ones come. Mm. One of them tells him just, it's God's pronouncement. Your sins are forgiven. One of them strips him of the old rags and clothes him in this new stuff, including this very distinctive coat, which when he gets to, for example, Vanity Fair is going to make him stand right. out. Yeah. Uh, also, it, it, it's the source of mockery from the guys who tumble over the wall. They think it's a very <laughs> silly coat. And then he is given a <laughs> brand on the forehead, yeah. which honestly, I think that might be the mark, mark of, the of the beast. beast. I would be yeah. very upset if I were him. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, there's actually a mark on the forehead of, the, of believers in the book of Revelation as mm-hmm. well. And he's given this scroll that is sealed and told, read this along the way and hand it to the gatekeeper at the celestial gate. And then he's sent continuing on the way. He's not at the end of the road. He's at the, yeah. he's at the beginning of this, the real journey now, the beginning of the third stage. It's, uh, I think that, because I've tried several times, I'm sure you've tried as well. 
it's hard to depict that, I think, any more beautifully. Yeah. Depict the entire, uh, I guess for, to use a poor word, that entire exchange that like occurs it's a right It's a great there. word. The, ex- the great exchange. Yeah. Our sin for God's righteousness. It's, uh, it's, it's really hard to, everything's just so well in place. This open tomb at the very bottom and this beholding this wondrous cross and he's, you know, and it, 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 it I like how you, um, um, you had in there that he doesn't even like really feel it fall off. Right. It he just, just notices he's suddenly lighter. And he looks and it's, yeah, it's, it's gone. gone. It's rolling down into this. And earlier today you said something where you know that the next pilgrim who looks in the tomb doesn't see it either. Right. Yeah. That sin is gone. It is gone. If yeah. He, if he were to, he would never in yeah. this moment. But if he were to run down and look in there again. Yeah. yeah it's gone. It's, it's yeah. completely as far as east is from the west, the cast yeah. in the depths of the sea history. Yeah, it, it it isn't being it isn't being kept somewhere to be brought back later or you know some kind of held uh, against him as evidence against at him, the yes. gates or something. Exactly, it's gone because Jesus paid for it. Mm-hmm. It's like when I go out to eat with my dad, and we have this game of who can like using subterfuge pay for lunch before the other one does. Yeah, and the moment I realize that he's cleverer than me and he paid for my lunch, I'm like, dang it, you. Ugh. But there's nothing to be done. The debt doesn't exist. I can't yeah. go and pay it now. It's already paid. Mm. And all I can do is give a bigger tip at, yeah. by way of gratitude, a gratuity. And that's all we can do. Is I mean, it's already paid for. The, the, the thing is gone. The sin is gone. The guilt is gone, too. The mm. shame is gone. Christ paid for that, too. He bore the shame. Mm. All we can do is offer ourselves as a thank you, a gratuity, a, 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 just in gratitude, in service to him. And Christian is happier than can be to do that here. Well, and, and and all it took was a look. All it took was yes. a look at the cross. There was no kind of like work that he had to accomplish no there. Hoops there was to jump no through. hoops to jump through. There was no slicing of the palm and adding your blood to the nothing. There right. was nothing right. added into it. And that's such a um, distinctly Christian uh, appliance of salvation, where you go to all these other religions and there's some cost. From you. And in the church, we've even tried to create oh, these yeah. here and there. Mm-hmm. Like you have to, even something is like starts out logistical and, and just kind of pragmatic. Like fill out this card so we can plug you into a church. Sure. Almost becomes like that's the ritual. I remember to when I filled out the card. No, yeah. no, no. Remember to when Jesus died on a cross. Yeah. Right? If you're going to remember anything, remember when you were plunged under the water of mm-hmm. baptism because that's connected to yeah. the death and the resurrection. But yeah, he does nothing. He looks at it. It calls to mind um, Moses. When the, when the uh, Israelites are wandering in the desert and they begin grumbling and complaining and in come the fiery serpents. Yes. If there's a better picture of Satan and yes. judgment than a fiery serpent, I don't know what it is. And God says to make uh, a bronze snake and put mm-hmm. it on a pole and then they hold it up. Yeah. And if you're bit, you look, you find wherever in the, the camp, in the massive group of people, that giant pole is with the snake and you look at it and you will... The venom won't kill you. It, mm. the, what's inside, what's been injected into you and is coursing through your veins will not end your life and destroy you. And Jesus says, just as they lifted up that snake in the desert, so I will be lifted up, which to me is a very kind of haunting yeah. comparison. And he is lifted up on the cross and I look to him for salvation. Even if you're one of the soldiers who did it, even if you stabbed him in the side. Yeah. And then you look at him and say, surely, surely this is the son, son of God. Of yeah. I mean... A look, and, and you're saved. And how greatly that highlights how little we can do for our own salvation. Yeah. Even while we've just had this picture of a guy who 
didn't watch mm. and therefore didn't attain. You know, the guy yeah. who slept instead of... And, and there's a real tension in this. And I think it's a good tension to maintain. You did nothing to earn your salvation. You did nothing to receive your salvation. You brought to the table only the sin that made it necessary. Uh, you came empty-handed, filthy, and vile, and rebellious. And God made you new, washed you clean, clothed you. And yet, if God did all that, mm. it's not going to have no effect. Right. To suggest that it would is blasphemous. Yes. It means that, that all these things that are the most powerful, amazing, holy things we can imagine mm. are of are powerless and useless and ordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the and that's the last thing you could call any of this is ordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think treating it as ordinary is kind yeah. of part of what lands you in well, the it, cage or gets it, you off course. Uh, you know, me and you had been reading First uh, Corinthians for a while, and some of the problems there seem to be just not treating these sacred, beautiful things as sacred and beautiful and making them these games, mm -hmm. you know, the taking of the Lord's Supper is no, you know, you know, it becomes this kind of rich in front, poor in back kind of game rather than a real remembrance of the victory purchased, you know, uh, through Christ's blood and our participation because, you know, in mm -hmm. it. Rather than it becomes an excuse to get drunk too. Yeah, right? it becomes a, just to just to eat and get drunk and talk with your friends and forget everyone else in the back, and that's all. You know, it just becomes an ordinary meal at that point. Christ this is, is just eating. This is when you've got Revelation three. Yeah, Christ is outside of the meeting. He's yeah. not part of. Yeah, he's been he's been locked out because I think look at what we tend to do as a culture with every holy holiday, even even something yeah. that I wouldn't say is super sacred and holy like St. Patrick's Day. Sure. But, like, this is a guy who was a slave, yeah. escaped his slavery. What an amazing story. Escaped back home, truly is converted and convicted in his faith and decides he's going to go back yeah. and bring the gospel. And, okay, let's all get drunk. Yeah. Uh, we were. I was talking on Ash Wednesday at our service about how we've taken, uh, you know, what had been a holy uh, time of self-examination. And over time, what the church does is say, okay... Shrove Tuesday, uh, from the word shrive, which means absolution, your last chance to really be absolved until Maundy Thursday, get all your sinning out. And wow. so now you have Mardi Gras, crazy sin go nuts. And then I'm sure most of those people aren't even worried about absolution. It just becomes instead mm. now an excuse to sin. So you've taken what was originally at its core about yeah. self-denial, repentance, and thinking about your own mortality and the goodness of God and the wickedness of our human hearts and wanting God to remake us and turning it into, I'll throw you some beads if you lift up your shirt. Yeah. Well, then putting the stamp of the church on it. Oh, you gosh. That's... Putting the stamp of, yep, this is, this, is, this, on the this is what our religion is, you know? Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm horrified by that. I think it's always going to be the tendency. And I think on a small level, we all have to guard against it. Mm. The, especially, I don't know, I, having been raised in, a, in the church... And in a very godly family, and never seeing these things treated as ordinary. Still, I struggle with like the the constant handling of the outside of holy things, making them seem. And working in a church, come to a church right. every day, it doesn't you know it doesn't seem odd or un, it's not special, quote unquote. Yeah, and we have to guard against this. You know, listening to 
Christian radio that presents God as my boyfriend and <laughs> never, what did, what did I see the other day? Um, a tweet that I don't remember, it was a young lady tweeting. She said, um, if they replaced the word broken with wicked and vile, I think worship uh, music leaders would stop singing about themselves or something like that. <laughs> you know, we have to remember that, yes, we we can have these wonderful times of communion, close, sweet communion with God. Hmm. He does welcome us at the gate. He doesn't turn us away. He does embrace us. He is going to restore faithful and wash his wounds uh, when he rescues him from the law, uh, beating upon him. But we can't treat God as if he were just our buddy, hmm. you know, the buddy Christ. You remember, you probably don't. You're probably too young to remember this. It's a Kevin Smith movie called Dogma. And for a long time, uh, you'd see pictures and even actual figurines of this. It was called the buddy Christ. And it was, uh, uh, the church was revamping the image of how people saw Jesus. Yeah. Thumbs up and yeah. pointing at, um, we all laughed at that. And I think, I think it was funny in a, it was ha ha sad because it rang true. Right. Let me just say this as we end. If you don't know whether or not you've been to the cross and lost your burden, uh, I really encourage you to pray about it. Reach out to me if you like. Uh, you can you can email me. You can reach out to, better yet, a local pastor in your area or a, a friend who knows the Lord. If you want to be saved from your sin, I promise you that you will be. I promise you that Jesus will accept you and wash you clean and make you new. And in the end welcome you into his kingdom and, and it is the best news ever. That's why we call it the gospel the good news. If you have received these things and been relieved of the, the burden, keep that scroll close to you. Don't let it go. Don't fall asleep. Keep watch. Be alert and stay on the narrow road. Thanks for listening. To support this program and for additional content and perks, visit patreon.com slash pilgrimsprogress. Make sure you don't miss a beat by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, and please take a moment to leave us an honest review. This recording, copyright 2022, high and silver, all rights reserved. Produced by Brad Acheson and Zachary Bartles. Theme music licensed from pond5.com. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of good news publishers. Used by permission, all rights reserved. For more audio experiences of my fiction, visit www.zacharybartles.com slash audio. Hi, and Silva. Good. Check.